Well, good morning. It is good to be back home. Um, but you've discovered already the sign of a successful professor. All you have to do is find a really great student, stand next to them, and take all the credit. <laughs> that's, the, that's, the, that's the secret none of us like to talk about. It is good to be back here, um, back in the CNMA Church in Toronto. First Alliance Church was our home church. When I graduated from Canadian Bible College, Noel and I began pastoral ministry across Canada, pastoring and church planting for 20 years. Before we went down to the Boston area to teach at Gordon-Conwell Seminary while also pastoring CNMA Church. Before we moved to California while also pastoring CNMA Church until just very recently. But all through those years, I've had such enormous respect for this church, for Rexdale Alliance Church. Because through all the years, Rexdale Alliance Church has been known for two things. Been known for such a high regard for God's word. Always holding God's word high and, and also taking it seriously. And really being given to missions around the world. It's not just knowing the word, but it's taking it to the world. And so it's a real honor to be here with you today. I was raised in the church. Like it or not, my parents took me to church every single week. I know. I didn't always think that at the time, but it's good. It's good. It is good. They took me more than once. Spent all day Sunday, I think, at churches and in the evening and afternoons. And I was there. And I spent my life in the church. And one thing I've discovered about church people, it seems like pretty universal. Church people tend to be pretty conservative, right? I mean, I'm not talking politically. I don't want to get into the election. I'm not talking voting conservative. I just mean in general. Christians tend to be conservative. I mean, they're the kind of people that walk on the sidewalk. Um, we will cross the road, but only at a crosswalk. And we're the only ones who wait till you know, you hit the button. We wait till the light changes till we can cross at the, at the crosswalk. We always signal when we change lanes. Um, we do text when we drive, but we feel guilty about it. Um, we, um, we're into insurance. We love good insurance. When you buy a car, you're looking for the five stars safety rating. How many airbags does it have? Uh, RRSPs are our friends. You know, um, we just tend to be conservative. Nothing wrong with being conservative. Unless that spills over into our Christian life. Because in our Christian life, I see often Christians kind of stand back and say, you know, I'm just playing it safe. Well, other people take the stage, but I'm just going to stand in the shadows. That's not helped by Hollywood. I don't know if you've noticed, but almost every movie that's come out recently is about superheroes, right? I mean, we got... Spider-Man or Superman or the Hulk or somebody coming out. They're superhuman people who deal with the problems of life. And boy, if Iron Man doesn't come, I don't know what we're going to do. I mean, we need the Avengers to save the planet and us. No, we're just kind of the bit players in the movie. We're there. We're in the background. We watch. But we don't really do much. We're playing it safe. We're conservative. 
We let the heroes take the stage, make all the difference in the world. Sometimes that comes across in our history of the church. We tend to focus on the the heroes. Even in our own day, we look at certain individuals as being the heroes and we stand and, and support them. I mean, as you look back in in history, who are some of the people we regard as heroes? Who are some of the people who have done extraordinary things for God? Who are they? Who comes to mind? Hudson Taylor. Taylor. Absolutely. There's a man who opened up China, a man who gave his life, who's changed the fate of billions of people. That's the man that I am in deep awe of, like um, probably most of you. Who's another name? Billy Graham. What a gift, hasn't he been? I mean, a life of integrity, a life of blessing, preached to more people than perhaps anyone else. Who else? Sorry? St. Paul. Paul. What an example, particularly of unity. Jonathan Edwards. Edwards. Yeah. (laughs) Did I mention, Wade mentioned I have two boys, Nathan and Jonathan Edwards. Just saying. Just saying, no relation really, but still, one of my heroes. We look at those people and we say, those are the great people. And they are great people. Those are the people, but we kind of view them as superheroes. They're the ones that do it. And our job is to be in the background and to do so little. Just to watch, just to clap. We play it safe because we're conservative. In every part of life. It doesn't help me when I look at Hebrews 11. That's always a tough one to have someone preach at me. Because those are the heroes of the faith. I look at them and I say, yeah, there's them and then there's us. But recently I took another look at Hebrews 11. And and what's interesting is that they're not perfect people either. I mean, there's Noah. He's mentioned as a hero of the faith. And I mean, he was. I mean, he's. Of all the righteous, of all the people in the world, the world was full of sin. But there's one righteous man, and he was Noah. And he was good. He preached for hundreds of years while he built his boat. And he preached for years. No one was saved, but he preached. Um, time came, and they shut the door, and he floated around and came out. And what did he do when he got out of the boat? Got drunk. There's our guy. Oh, he's, he's a hero, but he's cut from the same cloth as we are. And there's Abraham. I have a lot of respect for Abraham as well. I mean, God came and called him from the Ur of the Chaldees and he went. He looked up at the stars and he believed God's promises and was counted to him as righteousness. No, he's an amazing man. (laughs) You know, do you remember when he went into the foreign country, took his wife with him? King took one look at her and said, man, she's a sharp looking woman. What do you know about her? Uh, she's my sister. Now, come on. Come on. How many of you guys would be in trouble if you went overseas on vacation? Some guy looked at your wife and said, who's she? My sister. I mean, wouldn't anniversary be a little bit awkward? I mean, you won't even acknowledge me as your wife. I mean, are you... I mean, you're kidding. Mentions Jacob. He's one of my uh, he's one of my favorites. Just got to just got to tell you. He uh, uh, steals the birthright from his brother. Well, that's not true. He trades it for soup. Seriously, Campbell's soup. You give up your birthright for Campbell's soup. That's not much. Lies to his dad. 
um, has to run for his life. And his mother says, you better get out of here. You're no longer welcome at home. Ends up with his uh, another family. Um, sees this girl. I want to marry her. Do you remember their wedding night? Do you remember that? He gets married. He doesn't notice till the next day that he married the wrong woman. So, you know, like I'm not a counselor, but I think you've got a bit of a drinking problem. If you didn't notice on your wedding night, you married the wrong woman. I never noticed. And then he's coming back home. And then he's coming back because he alienates his father. He's got to run for his life. And and Esau's coming from his brother who got so mad at him. He's coming home and he thinks his brother's going to tear him to pieces. So what does he send in advance to placate his brother? What does he send first? Gifts. Send gifts. I'll bribe him. I'll bribe him. And if that doesn't work, what does he send next? His wife and kids. You wonder why his kids got screwed up? Can you imagine that father-son conversation? Dad, Dad, why aren't you coming with us? Well, my brother is big and he's mean and I think he's angry. So he may kill us all, but better you than me. Now, there's a Father's Day sermon for you. You know what I realized reading Hebrews 11? The heroes of the faith are just ordinary people. Just ordinary people that allowed God to use them in extraordinary ways. The reality is that God uses people like you and me. People that stand in the background to win the world for Christ. I mean, it's easy for us to look at the screen and look at the maxis and say, Amen, go hero. You go reach Indonesia while we sit in the background and watch you. Maybe we'll write a check, but we're just going to watch you do your thing. Because we're playing it safe. We're staying on the sidewalk. And we're only going to cross when we hit the button. But God uses ordinary, ordinary people. He chose disciples who are ordinary people. I mean, if you were going to choose 12 people to, to grow the church, to go from sea to sea, you probably wouldn't have chosen the people Jesus chose. He chose people, some of whom were commercial fishermen. Have you met a commercial fisherman? Anyone? Anyone? No commercial fishermen? They're peasants of the sea. They're good, hardworking people. I got to meet some of them when we lived in Boston, in the North Shore. We lived outside of Gloucester, the the place where uh, the first fishing center in America. It's still a a center for fishing. And those guys work hard. Commercial fishing is the most dangerous profession in America. More people get killed on fishing boats than any other profession. And they work hard in all kinds of weather. They're hard, tough people. They're blue collar to their core. None of them that as far as I met had a master's degree. They didn't have high school. They didn't have doctorate degrees. None of them have been chosen to be secretary of state or run for a high office. They're just average salt of the earth people. But those are the people Jesus said he wanted to build his kingdom with. Those are the people he comes to and says, I want to use you to change the world. He uses salt of the earth people. He uses you and me. Pastor Wade told me a couple weeks ago he spoke on the Beatitudes. There you learn there are eight characteristics that describe who we are as Christians. All eight are critical. You don't get to choose three of your favorite or 
four out of eight or something. All eight are describe us. But what you may not have noticed is that Jesus goes on to say that may be who we are. But now, if you are the person of God, now this is what you're supposed to do. And we're supposed to be salt and light. We are the salt of the earth. Isn't that interesting? He chooses the salt of the earth to be the salt of the earth. He chooses us to be light. We're the ones that are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. It's we who make the difference. I don't know about you, but that scares me. I look at that and I say, but who am I? I mean, you know me, I'm not a hero. I'm not Iron Man. I'm not Superman. I'm just the guy in the background. How can God use me to transform this world, to take the gospel to those who need to hear it? How can he use me? How can he use you? I think we gained some insight into that. By looking at a man who also, I think, felt like he was just ordinary. And see how God used him. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Joshua. Back into the Old Testament. Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse 1, begins. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord... The Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aide. In Hebrew, that means Moses' youth pastor. (laughs) Moses, God says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Okay, he knew that. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give you to the Israelites. Verse 3, and I'll give you every place where you set your, uh, set your foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to the Lebanon, to the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite countries, to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. <laughs> that sounds wonderful, but I don't think it was good news for Joshua. You're going to be with me. As you were with Moses. Great. And you want me to take this land? And you're going to be with me as you were with him? Did Moses take the land? No. And you're going to be with me as you were with him? Oh, good. I mean, just imagine you're Joshua. All these years you've been Moses' youth pastor. You've watched Moses. I mean, Moses... He grew up in Egypt. He had the the education of a prince of Egypt. God came to him in a burning bush, called him, used him miraculously with ten different miracles to rescue the people of, of Israel from Egypt. After 430 years, they got out. Moses is the one that met God at Sinai, got the commandments. When Moses spent time with God, he glowed. Wouldn't that be intimidating? When's the last time you glowed after your devotions? I mean, I rarely glow. In fact, never. How are you supposed to follow a guy like that? He leads them right to the edge of the promised land. The guy failed at nothing except one thing. What did he fail at? Getting them into the promised land. He tried. He begged. 
He did everything he could. Please go, please go. This is the land flowing with milk and honey. And they said, no, giants are too big. The grapes are too large. I don't want to go. He failed. He led the people into the wilderness and they complained the whole time. They get they were out of Egypt. They're free. Oh, I don't have any water. All upset at Moses. He gives them water. I'm all upset because I don't have meat. He gives the meat. They're upset with him all the time. This went on and on and on. He got frustrated with these people. So frustrated. When they demanded water again, he didn't just speak to the rock. He hit it. And that disqualified him from entering the promised land. I mean, Moses is a stinking hero and he didn't get in. And you know how his life ended. God says, come walk with me up to the mountain. Look at the land you'll never get into. Then you're going to die and I'll bury you. Cool. And God says to Joshua, Moses is dead. Now I'm going to use you. Stink. Find somebody else. Get an Iron Man. Get an Avenger. I'm just the youth pastor. What? I can't do better than him. I'm not a hero. And you would have thought that too if you were him. I mean, look at his resources. He's got a whole nation of people who do nothing but complain and rebel. That's neat. Um, what kind of training do they have? What's their education level? Yeah, kind of none, because they're kind of been wandering, waiting for the generation to die. And that would be encouraging in itself, wouldn't it? Jake, how are you doing? Pretty good? Oh, just die so we can get going, will you? Low education level. How about their how about their skill in battle? How many were trained warriors? None. Oh, that's cool. Um, how many how about armaments? How many advanced armaments did they have? None. Okay, so the good news is across the river there's a land flowing with milk and honey. That's good. The bad news is other people have discovered that first. And they don't want to leave. And my job is to do what the hero couldn't do, is to lead these people into victory. How are we going to do that? How are you going to do that? How can we, as ordinary people, unhero people, be used by God in significant ways? How can we do that? Well, God says to him something which is interesting in this passage. He says in verse 6, how does it begin in verse 6? What does God say to him? Be strong. be strong and courageous. Okay. Verse 7, he says what? Be strong, be strong and courageous. Um, and then in, the, in verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be what? Strong. strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. What does it mean to be strong and courageous? I know one thing. It doesn't mean do nothing. That's what it doesn't mean. When God says, I've got a command for you, and he has a command for us, he happens to have said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And he says that to ordinary people like us. And he tells us, as he tells him, I've got a plan for you. I want you to be strong and courageous. So you know what that means? It means do something, right? It means we don't just sit, soak, and sour. I know we love Bible teaching. I love the Bible. I love it. 
And we love to be fed. Man does not live by bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. I know that. But you got to do more than just eat. What happens if all you do is eat? You've got a congregation of fat sheep. We don't eat to get fat. We eat for energy to do something. It's called be strong and courageous. So when God calls us to be salt and light, we don't just sit there and say, let's have a committee meeting. Let's form a royal commission. Let's talk about it. Let's think about it. There comes a time where we have to act. As a congregation, we have to act. As individuals, we have to act. There's something we have to do. But the question we ask is, yeah, but what? What do I do? Well, what did Joshua do? He knew that God had called him to go across the river. We know that God has called us to reach the world. How do we take the first step? How do we begin? Well, look at what Joshua does. In chapter 2, we read, in verse 1, And Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho, which made sense. Go into the land. Jericho is the key city. I mean, that's at the gateway. You're going to take the promised land. You got to take Jericho. So, you know, you know what Joshua doesn't do? He doesn't say, okay, guys, let's go. Ah! Let's just go take it. Because I think he says, I'm not sure if this may be the right time, the right way. So let me just take the first step. Let me send just two spies in. Because what if he got something wrong? What if he didn't hear from God correctly? What would, have, what, would have, what would be the result if he lost the two spies? Would that have been catastrophic? No. Two guys, I mean, that's bad. But it's not catastrophic. He takes the first step. He takes the first step to see if God is in it. If this is what God wants me to do, if this is how God wants me to advance his plan, then I'll take a step and see if he responds. And he does. He sends two spies. What happens to these spies? What happens? Yeah. Like they last about five minutes and everyone says they're spies. They had no CIA training. They didn't know how to, maybe they, you know, still didn't dress like the people. I don't know. Whatever they did, they did everything wrong. They got caught instantly. So they race into a house to hide. Guess whose house they ran into? A prostitute's house. Cool. You want to hide? Now you found a, a, a pagan prostitute's house to find it. You think they're dead, right? Is there a surprising part in this story? They found the only religious prostitute in the city. She's heard about the God's fame. They heard about what happens. I know your God is the God who's going to win. I know you're going to conquer us. And here's what. Just don't kill me when you conquer us. And I'll let you out and I'll lower the rope and you can escape back. Does that seem odd? Doesn't that sound like God is in it? So so Joshua takes a step. To see, is this really what God wants me to do? Is this the path he wants me to take? And God responds. Well, that's cool. So then, chapter 3, they end up at the Jordan. 
The Jordan, you can't get into the promised land without crossing the Jordan. Remember they didn't the last time? So Moses couldn't get them across. They, they looked across, they didn't get across. Now he's got to get them across the Jordan. How are you going to get them across the Jordan? Now, the one thing I notice in chapter 3, verse 13, it says the Jordan is at flood stage during the harvest. So, like, that's not good news when you're crossing the Jordan. Because you know what it looks like at flood stage? I've done extensive archaeological research in this. I have spent hours searching YouTube. And this is someone's video of the Jordan River at flood stage. Look at this. Anybody want to go for a swim? How are you going to get across that? He's got to cross the Jordan River, got to cross that raging river. Does that seem dangerous to you? Yeah, it seems dangerous to me. How are you going to get across? I mean, think of all that could go wrong. He's got to get across, and he's got to go across with the Ark of the Covenant. Do you want anything bad to happen to the Ark of the Covenant? No. Would that be bad news for a leader to lose the Ark of the Covenant? Yeah, see, that would not be good. See, worst case scenario is you tell the, the priest, just go charging in the river. And if they do, in that river, what's going to happen? The ark's going to go bob, bob, bobbing away. And so will you. You're, you're done as a leader. So he doesn't do that. You know what he does? He tells the priests just to go and carry the ark and put your foot in. Right? Let's take a step and see if God is in this. And as they have the courage and the faith... To put their foot in the river, what happens? It stops. God builds an invisible Hoover Dam right above. It stops all the water and it becomes dry. And when it's dry, what do the priests do? They walk to the middle because obviously God is in this. We're not running ahead of God. We're taking a step to see if God is with us and if he will step along with us. I want to walk in step with God, not run ahead of God. And when they're standing in the middle, the people have the courage to do what? To cross. They never did it before, but they cross now. Why? Because they believe this is what God wants them to do. This is the next. Step. Do you see how wise Joshua is? He knows that God's will can only be accomplished with God's power, right? We can't do it because, I don't know if you've noticed, we're not superheroes. We're just ordinary people. But God uses ordinary people to accomplish great things for him. All he asks is that we walk in step with him. Because with his power, we can accomplish his purposes. Not on our own, but with his power. We just need to be sure we walk in step with him. And Joshua is brilliant. They, they cross the river, they get to the other side. And what do they do in chapter 4? What does he have them do? 
Yeah, bring some evidence. So he gets one person from each tribe to gather a stone from the middle of the river, right? Take it as evidence of what God has done. Bring it out and form a monument. Uh, so everyone will know this is what God has done. Tell stories. Tell stories of how God has used you. Tell stories of how God has used ordinary people to encourage so no one forgets the journey of faith that we have been on. He tells a story and then what does Joshua do? What is his next step in chapter 5? Recommitment. It's called circumcision. Ouch. He calls for a radical recommitment of the people to their God. You know what's interesting? It means that they weren't circumcised. It means that their parents didn't circumcise them. It means, it means that the people of God had drifted away from God. It means that the people had the name of the people of God, but they were not actually acting as the people of God. Maybe that's why they were in the wilderness. Maybe that's why God was not using them. Maybe that's why they were not able to accomplish the things that God wanted them to accomplish. Maybe that's why... They were suffering the way they were suffering. As we take a step and see if God is with us, we can take another step. And then we can take another step. And Joshua has the courage here to say, people, we will never accomplish God's objective unless we're radically committed. But he didn't ask them to be radically committed at the beginning because there was work that had to be done in their souls. They had to see who God was and what could God could do through them. And now they're ready. And they make this radical recommitment. And then Joshua in chapter 5, verse 13, got near Jericho. Oh, no. It's getting harder. It's getting more difficult. I mean, you would think it was more difficult if you saw Jericho. You know you've got to conquer Jericho. But look at this city. This is uh, not an actual photograph. It's more of an artist's rendition. But it's pretty accurate. It was one of the oldest cities in the entire world. And it was built to be defensive. They had springs coming up inside there. And we're told in the text that this was during harvest time. We know from the ruins, from archaeology, that that place was filled with food. They had water. They had food. They were basically impregnable. There's nothing the Israelites could do to take them. I mean, look at this diagram of how the walls were constructed. This is a detail. Do you see down the right those little guys standing there on the slope? So first of all, there's a slope coming up. And then they've got about seven meters of walls straight up. That's kind of hard getting over a wall seven meters. And then you've got to run up another slope to get to the next wall, right? You know what they call that grass in the middle? The killing zone. Because if you make it over the first wall, the chances of getting over the second wall is going to take you a long time. And meanwhile, the people on top are killing you while you're trying to do that. This is the most sophisticated defensive structure in the world at the time. 
It was so good it was used all through the Middle Ages. Israel is supposed to conquer that? Are you nuts? There's no way they can do that, right? They're untrained. They don't have the armaments. They can't lay siege and wait them out because they've got food, they've got water. They can stay there longer than the Israelites can camp outside. It is absolutely impossible. And there are times when we look at the task that God has given us and we say, I'm just a person. I'm not a hero. I'm not Superman. I'm not the Hulk. I don't have superpowers. I can't accomplish the task that God has given me. I can't win my world for Christ. Are you kidding? I can barely make it through the day. I think Joshua felt that way. God, I thought you were in this. I've taken one step to see if you would respond. I've taken another step to see if you would respond. Another step. But now, what am I supposed to do now? And what happens? Look at what happens in this text. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. Now, Joshua was near Jericho. He looked up and saw what? Ha this is exciting. He saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword. And Joshua went up to him and said, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Oh, good news. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and said, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, what? What does he say in the text? Verse 15. Take off your sandals for the place Where you are standing is holy. Do you remember any other time when something similar happened? Moses. And who was it in the burning bush that said, take off your sandals for this is holy? Who was it? God. Who is it here? God. I think this is a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ. When he walks forward in God's step, in harmony with God's will, Jesus shows up. I think that's what happens to us. I think this is how ordinary people make an extraordinary difference. I think that's how we become salt and light. It's not us. It's us walking in simple obedience to him. And God shows up and does what only he can do. And you know what, Joshua doesn't launch a big, brilliant military campaign. He gets the priests holding the ark with just a few guards and they walk around the city. Absolutely no military strategy. What are they doing? Showing off the ark. You may not be afraid of us, but you better be afraid of our God. And they walk again and again until they come to the seventh day. And what do they do the seventh day? How many times do they walk around? Seven times. Guess why? I have no idea. (laughs) But it was seven times. They walked around seven times. And then he says to them, now the priests blow their trumpet. And now all the people of Israel did what? They shouted. Why? Because they were confident that the God that they served would win a victory that they could never win on their own. Right? And what happened? The walls fell down. I don't know if it was an earthquake. I don't know what it was. God made it happen. And you know what archaeologists have discovered? The walls fell out. God pushed 
those walls down. And as soon as that happened, we read in the text that every Israelite ran in and conquered them and defeated them. They won the victory. That's what they did. God used ordinary people. He used a youth pastor and defeated people to do what was impossible because he did it, not them. Look, how does God want to use you? What is your gift? What's your ability? We don't have to be all evangelists or preachers or anything else. Of course not. We've all got different gifts. But God has uniquely made you and I and put us in an environment with relationships with people so that we could be salt and light and win this world for Christ. Right? It's not just up to the maxis. It's up to us. And one of the things he asks us to do is be strong and courageous. Don't sit back and just think about it. Do something. But I don't know what to do. Good. Take a lesson from a youth pastor. Take a first step and see if God is in it. And if he is, take another step. And if he is, what do you do? Take another step. Because on your own, if you're going the wrong way, God's not in it. Stop. Reevaluate. Try a different direction. But if he's in it, you could change the world. You know what it means to do evangelism? It means to dance with God. Daily. Let's take a step. God, I'll take the step. And if you're in it, then you'll respond. And then I'll take another step. It's a dance. We dance in harmony with God. And it's not dancing with the stars. Okay? It's not just the heroes. This is square dancing. Everybody get out there. Grandma gets out there. The kids get out there. Everyone gets out there. We're all on the dance floor dancing with our Savior. Because we want to be used by Him. And if He's with us, we can change the world. As long as you're strong and courageous enough to get out on the dance floor. Will you get out there? Will you take a step? If you make a mistake, so what? Try a different direction and God will join you there. I'm not a hero. At age 12, Jesus amazed people with his knowledge. I haven't amazed anybody yet. But a few years ago, I realized we need to do something in this world. We need to make a difference. I need to make a difference. I've been teaching pastors for years. I've been a pastor teaching pastors to be more effective. I know how helpful that can be. But I realized that 85% of all pastors in the world have no training. 85% of the people have, don't know, of leaders of the church, do not know how to understand this book. Do not know what it means, how to determine the meaning, and how to communicate it. So you have been fed on God's word all these decades, and that's wonderful. Many congregations are not. When I came to Hanoi, Vietnam, to begin work there, it's a CNMA background church. The first sermon I heard, you know what it said? You know what the guy said? I'm not kidding. He told the people, if you're late for church, when Jesus returns, you'll go to hell. I asked the interpreter three times, are you sure? <laughs> no, really? He said that? One of the pastors told us, told me, 
thank you so much for coming. Because I never knew that when I went to prepare a sermon, I should use the Bible. This is the state of the church around the world. I'm just telling you. What we have here is a feast. It's not in the rest of the world. How do we equip these gifted, godly people to do that? I thought I needed to do something. God laid it on my heart. I don't know if it's the right step, but I took a step. I stayed with my full-time master's contract, quit my doctoral teaching, went back and earned a Ph.D. in intercultural education, because I better know something about intercultural education if I want to help these people. And then I called a bunch of friends to a meeting to present this idea that we now call Crosstalk Global. And I came to that meeting, and I am scared to death, because what happens if they say it's a bad idea? We're done. But somehow, I had the courage to take a step to see if God was in it. And I was shocked. Guess what they said? I think this has got some potential. Oh, okay. So, so maybe if God did it, maybe I'll take another step. And we scraped up enough money for one plane ticket. And I went to Oradia, Romania. Started working with 24 pastors, teaching them how to understand and communicate the Bible. And it, it went well. And so we took another step. And we, we started in Hanoi. And we took another step. And we started in Havana, Cuba. And now we are in nine countries on four continents. I'm not a superhero. I'm just a kid who grew up in Scarborough. I'm a kid out of First Alliance Church. But God doesn't use superheroes. He uses ordinary people like us in ways beyond our wildest understanding because it's not us, it's Him. And if we're willing to take a step on the dance floor and say, God, I want to be strong and courageous best I can. At least I'll take a step. Will you take my hand and take the next, next step? And then we'll take a next step. And together we will dance in ministry. And if I'm walking with him, he will show up. Just like Jesus showed up for Joshua. And together we can accomplish an amazing thing. And it's not us, it's him. We're just jars of clay. But when we're in his hands, we can do an amazing thing. Look, how does God want to use you to reach this world for Christ? Don't sit back in the background of the movie and look at the maxis as superheroes. What are you going to do? He uses all of us. Are you willing to take a step? Do you hear the music? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And lo, if you do, I'll be with you always, holding your hand even to the end of the age. Don't stay on the sidewalk. Be strong. Be courageous. Let's change this world for Christ. Amen? Father, thank you for using ordinary people like us. Thank you for the privilege of being able to dance with you, to dance in ministry, to dance to advance your kingdom. 
You've said that this kingdom is like a mustard seed, that the branches are going to grow till every corner of the globe is affected, till every part of this world is yours. Father, thank you for allowing us to play a small part. Father, give us the courage, the courage to get off the sidewalk, to be strong and courageous, and then to be amazed when you show up. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.